When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Sexiest Man Alive edition. It's Wednesday, November 17th, 2021. On today's show, Passing, it's a feature film on Netflix and an adaptation of the classic Harlem Renaissance novel by Nella Larson. Tells the story of two friends, both black, one of whom passes, one who doesn't whose reunion after years apart results in agonizing soul-searching over their shared and unshared identities. It stars Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega. And then Apple TV gives us an adaptation of the marvelous podcast, The Shrink Next Door, the story of a shrink's long con undertaken against his poor, vulnerable patient. It stars Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd. And finally, Paul Rudd. Did someone say Paul Rudd? He's gone from that guy from clueless to deliciously ubiquitous to, yes, it's true, the sexiest man alive. For some reason, we're talking about this. We're getting ready today. Joining me is uh, culture writer extraordinaire Karen Hahn. Karen, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm so intrigued by your Twitter bio. and the, Oh, really? And the letters NDA, Karen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I am working on something, but not publicly allowed to talk about it yet. But I mean, if I come back at a time when I am allowed to talk about it, rest assured, that is all I will talk about. We're also joined by Dana Stevens, of course, the film critic for Slate and author of a forthcoming book. Dana, uh, maybe brief uh, description. I mean, I have to get good at this because I'm going to have to start promoting it and selling it soon. And this is my absolute worst skill as a writer is like <laughs> quickly and slickly uh, producing a resume of what I'm working on. It's why I don't have a job in academia. Uh, but I guess I would quickly say that my book is not a biography. It is not exactly film criticism. It's something like a cultural history of Buster Keaton's lifespan, which was 1895 to 1966. So it's essentially sort of a study of American culture during that period and how uh, various developments in culture wove in and out of Buster Keaton's life. Is that thumbnail-y enough? I think it was under a minute. <laughs> I think that would fit in a tweet. But I had one message to listeners about this, which is that, Steve, when you've been asking me about this for our past few months of shows, and when we had Isaac on, Isaac Butler, who also has a book coming out around the same time, I had been very sort of diffident about promoting it because it wasn't actually done, right? I mean, it wasn't actually in production, like physically being produced. A part of me didn't really trust that it was coming out on that actual date and was foreseeing some sort of disaster where I'd have to retract the whole thing. But now that's all happened. And so I am releasing the Kraken <laughs> and I'm asking listeners, if you're at all interested in this book and you think that you might pre-order it, go to your computers, open a <laughs> browser window and say, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take Life Without Cameraman by Dana Stevens anymore because this is the moment these few months before publication where lots of decisions get made about, you know, marketing, sales, who's going to carry the book, who's going to advertise it, and even most basic things that I didn't know about, like how many prints will be in the first print run, right? I mean, that's based on pre-orders and how much excitement there is about the book. So put mm. it this way, there are meetings happening at my publisher right now, some of which I will be at later in the week in which if those numbers went up right now, it would be really, really good for me and really bad for my enemies. <laughs> so please <laughs> go to your computers and order Cameraman if you think you want to buy it. I made it as good a book as I could. I mean, first of all, yes, if you're listening to this, please, please go do it. I'm uh, going to do it as soon as we're done recording this episode. But then secondly, what would... What would an enemy of Dana Stevens even look like? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like Steven, what, take me what? out for a drink and I will I will give you a very, very clear <laughs> portrait. Oh wow. Oof, <laughs> ouch. Well, I whoever that deformed troll is, I I, I don't want to freaking know them. But all right, let's get back at that deformed troll uh and and order Dana's book. I'm so, so psyched to read it and and discuss it. All right, shall we make a show? Let's do it. Uh, yeah. 
Excellent. Okay, Passing. It's the classic Nella Larson novel from 1929. It tells the story of Irene, a black woman living in her own way, a sort of deeply satisfying life in New York City during the height of the Harlem Renaissance. She's married to a doctor, is friends with the extraordinary Carl Van Vechten, here called Hugh Wentworth, uh, the famous white patron to the Harlem Renaissance. She has two loving children, a beautiful house, and even a servant. Uh, then one day she runs into Claire, a white and very upper bourgeois woman married to a successful financier and a bewitching flirt. But she's actually not white. She's white to the world. This is a reality that Irene knows well. They were friends once. She's a black woman who's passing. The two old friends reunite, and immediately they become objects of mutual fascina- of, of renewed mutual fascination to one another. What must Irene suffer for being black in America? What has Claire lost by turning herself into a beneficiary of racial privilege? What follows is a delicate study of identity as it both holds up and confines us of female friendship and rivalry. Uh, It stars Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega and Alexander Skarsgård revives, I guess, what's becoming kind of a little, you know, industry for him. He plays the malevolent uh, white husband. It's also the directorial debut of Rebecca Hall, the British actress. Let's, uh, let's listen to a clip. Dana, before we, uh, before we listen, do you want to set it up? Sure. This is an early scene from the film, and it's a moment. It's the first moment that the two women meet after their accidental initial meeting. So the movie opens as the book opens with the two of them in a tea room, a very white space, you know, a very sort of fancy posh hotel tea room um, where they run into each other. And essentially, this ruse is kind of discovered. So this what you're about to hear is their first encounter after that. So the voices you'll hear in this scene belong to the two main actresses, Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega. The first voice you hear will be Claire's, the Ruth Nega character. You can't know. Never anyone to really talk to. Was insensitive of me not to think about that. Oh, I don't expect you to understand. You're happy. You have a true good life. And you're free. Free and safe. Safe. I don't even know what that is anymore. I'm beginning to believe that no one is ever completely happy for your sake. Well, then what does it matter if I come up here sometimes? You have a child, Claire. It's not just a matter of your safety. I think being a mother is the cruelest thing in the world. Yes. And the most responsible. All right. Well, Dana, this is uh, this is a, a debut directorial effort from Rebecca Hall, uh, best known as a, as an actress. Um, it's a novel in some ways crying out for a film adaptation, especially now. Um, what uh, did you make of it? I mean, first of all, it's a it's a stunning debut. I don't think that it is a perfect movie, but I think it is a really exciting directorial debut for any director to have. And certainly, you know, a, an actress who's only 39 years old making her first movie. I mean, it has an enormously confident touch and style, as we'll talk about it. Just it looks and sounds very specific and very sure of what it wants to be. It is also, from what I gather, I have only skimmed the novel. I wish I had had time to read it before seeing this, especially when I see what a faithful adaptation of the novel this is. But from even just reading some parts, like the beginning opening tea scene of the novel, I see that um, a lot of the dialogue is is taken directly from the novel and that, you know, a lot of care has been put into creating these spaces that feel true to the world of the novel, which is a somewhat, uh, I don't know if, if either of you have read it, but it's a somewhat chilly seeming world. There's a kind of a, a remove in the prose and a sense of um, almost anthropological examination in this novel by Nella Larson. And I think that you feel that in the movie as well, which sometimes keeps you maybe a little bit at arm's length and we can talk about that. But um I would I would essentially give this movie an A minus like it almost makes it to being a great film and it's pretty extraordinary that it even makes it that far. Uh Karen, A minus, uh you taking the over, the under, what uh, would you make of this? Maybe about the same or over. Like Dana said, I was also really impressed with this especially as a directorial debut and also because Rebecca Hall 
um, adapted the screenplay herself. So she's directing and writing for this film. Um, and we should also point out that the movie is in black and white, which is one of the things I think that it's made it sort of stand out. Like on the surface, it definitely seems a little bit like a gimmick, but watching it, um, the care that goes into making you feel like you are in that period and also the reasoning behind filming it like this, especially with regards to seeing or not seeing a character's skin tone, I think is really an interest. Like all the choices are really, really interesting and I think work in the film's favor. As Rebecca Hall has said in interviews, you know, black and white is not just black and white. It's gray. It's shades of gray. And this movie to me felt silvery. I would love to have seen it on the big Mm -hmm. screen. I didn't. I watched it at home on Netflix. But it has this silvery kind of sheen to it. She uses a lot of whiteouts, right? Instead of fading to black, she fades to white in between scenes a lot. And it gives the whole thing this... um, this very paper paperweight snow globe kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of use of actual snow. Mm-hmm. Some of the big scenes take place during winter. And there's just something crystalline and, and very um, sparkling and beautiful about the way it looks. The cinematography, I should say, is, is by Edward Grau. Yeah, it is an amazing looking movie. Um, Dana, I think you're right. It has this uh, almost studied chilliness to it. It's interesting to hear that that comes from uh, Nella Larson's book itself. The subject matter couldn't be more pressing and contemporary, obviously. Um, Not only, you know, America, but Hollywood in particular is belatedly uh, thinking through identity and race uh, and racial privilege, especially in Hollywood. And as compensation, they're finally attempting to give opportunities to black, brown, mixed race, you know, talent uh, to make films. And this this one's... I kind of loved this movie, but but it wasn't always that easy for me to love it. I thought for all of what's urgent and contemporary about the subject matter, there's an antique style in some ways, even for a period piece. There's a there's a that remove comes with a degree to my mind of stiltedness of speech and rhythm. There's a kind of self-consciousness that I began to think was totally intentional. That there's in some way you're taking this thing that you've received as a feature of, you know, some combination of c- culture and biology, right? Like you, we, all of us are born or, or, or let me put it, let me put it slightly more in a slightly more nuanced and, and contemporary way. I mean, we're, we're all assigned a race at birth and, and more or less. And to pass is to bring it out of whatever, unasked for inheritance it might be into the realm of choice and therefore conscious deliberation. And to me, that's the strength of the movie is that is that these two women talk through the choice that one of them has made and its implications for both of them and the other. Karen, I found the film singular, right? It's I, I can't quite compare it to anything. Its rhythms are so curious. Its temperature for a subject that's incredibly loaded and um, and and filled with you know, all kinds of really deep, dark social memories and impulses, you know, it's, it's coldness, it's stiltedness are so curious, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. And I I do think it is in part because of the subject matter, because I can't think of another film that has been so quote unquote mainstream, I guess, that has addressed the idea or issue of passing at all. Like, I think we're really only now coming around to the way that, (laughs) I guess, white supremacy has forced some people to act or believe that this is how they have to act in order to get by. For for instance, like I feel like code switching is something that we've only really started talking about on a bigger platform pretty recently, even though it's something that people have been doing for such a long time or felt they've had to do for such a long time. And passing in particular is something that I think we don't talk about at all, Mm -hmm. um, at least on a bigger stage like this, even though, like, among my friends and stuff, it's definitely something where we talk about, where it's like, I, like, have a friend, of instance, who, for instance, who is a person of color, but is very much white passing. And we've talked about how strange that is, where it, like, will afford you different, I guess, options in different spaces, but at the same time, I don't know, like choosing how far to go out of your way to point this out to people or like choosing in what spaces you want to talk about it or don't want to talk about it or how it can inherently remove you from what you feel to be your culture. It's I mean, it's a huge 
there's so many different layers to the idea of passing in general. And this is the first time that I, I feel like I've seen it on like um, on a bigger stage like this. Yeah, it's something that Spike Lee once in a while takes on as a kind of sub theme of his movies, right? There's there's often questions of colorism and, you know, who are the more light skinned and dark skinned among mm-hmm. his characters. But to have a whole movie that focuses on it, and especially between two women, is definitely unusual and feels radical, really. And something that's really, really fascinating, I think, is that the Tessa Thompson character, the one who has, you know, stayed in Harlem, considers herself a black person, identifies with that culture, um, is not in any way sort of the moral superior or the hero of the movie. You know, there isn't there isn't sort of a moral calculus or scenario between their characters where it's presumed that, you know, one of them is betraying her race and the other one is true to her race. In fact, both of them has have very ambivalent, conflicted and constantly changing relationships to how they present themselves and who they are. And something that keeps coming up with Tessa Thompson's character, Irene, is that, you know, in some ways within her own community, she she functions very much as, you know, a, a black woman who who feels black and wants to live that way. Right. She she volunteers for the Negro League, a charity in her in, in Harlem. She lies in bed reading a magazine called The Crisis, right, about about race relations in the 20s. Um, but at the same time, she doesn't want her husband, played by Andre Holland, to tell their sons about lynching and about violence against black people in the mm-hmm. South. Right. There's a part of her that wants to keep them safe and protected and who wants to be just a middle-class woman living her life who doesn't have to represent blackness at every second. And whereas her friend, right, this friend who is something of a frenemy who probably wants to to become closer to her than Irene would want to become, um, is very interested in these ideas of authenticity and you're living right, you're living well, and I'm not. When in fact, I don't think that the Tessa Thompson character feels at all that she is in the right place and belongs and is living the right life. And there's a wonderful moment where she's in bed with her husband talking about this woman who's become a part of their life. And she says something about, you know, but how can she feel at home and who she is? I can't remember how exactly she phrases it, but he says, how can anyone? You think they'd be satisfied being white? Yeah. Right. Who's satisfied being anything? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. does anyone yes. really feel feel right about who they who they are and how they're living? To me, to me, among the most poignant things about the movie is that, you know, there are, are m- multiple forms that racism can take, right, in addition to contempt or exploitation or, you know, whatever. There's also this weird tendency towards envy of the other in a weird way. Mm-hmm. And to have a, a black character have that kind of poignant envy f- for her f- own former self and for her friend, I thought there was something really aching about. I mean, you want to talk about the divided self, right? Like that to me was really, really digging deep at something. Um, I thought that was quite extraordinary. But speaking of digging deep, I feel like I need to say some of the things that make this movie an A minus for me, in spite of all these things that we're saying about it that are completely true and really positive, and everyone should see it. And several people whose taste I trust very much said, you know, this movie is fantastic. You've got to see it, right? Um, I think that my reservations come in around that kind of like wispiness or distance of this movie. There's something um, there's something very delicate about its treatment of this subject, which is great. But there's also almost especially toward the end, maybe the last 10, 20 minutes or so, almost a feeling of it slipping out of your grasp before it's quite done, you know, and that may be something that comes from the book. Maybe it also has this very evanescent kind of quality, but I felt like it was so delicately picking away at the strands of what's going on between these characters that in a way I wasn't quite sure what the relationships meant or what it was trying to say in the end. There was something almost insubstantial about its wispiness. And I know that even the way I'm describing this is very wispy and vague, but I wonder if either of you felt that as well. I almost feel like trying to make it less wispy or more explicit would have been maybe a disservice to the story. Because I feel like Irene, the way that she fails towards Claire is so complicated. There's so many different facets to it where she... And to a certain degree, she does not like Claire. Like she, one of the threads in the movies that she begins to sort of be afraid that her husband is more attracted to Claire than she is to her, than he is to her. And yet at the same time, she also, she's so horrified by um, Claire's husband and his behavior. Um, But at the same time, she doesn't have... I guess, as concrete a grasp on her identity or what she wants for herself or her children either. Um, And I think those are things that are kind of tougher to articulate. And it's, it's sort of the same thing. 
I think it, or it falls into a sort of similar category as I think a lot of um, almost like a body positivity to put it in a very uh, broad way where it's for such a long time, our perception of what is attractive and what isn't like has to do with white beauty standards or like proximity to whiteness or especially to skinniness where it's you want to feel comfortable in your own body. You want to feel um, that you don't need to change into something else in order to be accepted or valid as a human being, but just the way that these standards have been set on us for such a long time. And especially in the time period of the film that it's, I don't know, a lot of the times we internalize these things without necessarily being totally aware of them or even liking that we are like that. Um, and I, I don't know, I felt the, like the way that the film addressed it is felt close to the way that we tend to um, address it in our own lives in real life. That's true. And I think I wasn't asking for it to be more explicit. On the contrary, I'd love that it's not hammering home ideas or having some scene that, you know, clearly lays out exactly what all these relationships mean. I just wanted a little more of it. You know, I honestly, and I'm the one who's always saying, why is everything so long and padded? I could have done with another couple scenes between the two women as their relationship gets darker and more difficult around the time, not to spoil anything, but around the time that Claire gets back from Europe, right? And their relationship has shifted in various ways. It just felt like it rushed to the end a little bit then. And again, that may be, you know, exactly exactly how the story moves forward in the book. I think, I think I had a little bit of a feeling about this movie, like, wow, gorgeous, incredible use of image, wonderful performances, but a little bit is that all there is at the end. All right, well, it's passing. It's on Netflix and uh, three thumbs up, and we'd love to hear from you once you've watched it. Okay, moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. Okay, before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss uh, business. Dana, what do we have? Stephen, we have one item of business this week on top of the normal Slate Plus info that we break here, which is that we know when Julia is coming back. We've gotten a lot of listener emails about this over the past few months since she's been on maternity leave. And people miss Julia. We miss Julia. The show is not the same. As fun as it has been to talk to all the guest hosts that have cycled through, show is not the same without the big three, Julia Turner, Stephen Metcalf, and Dana Stevens. So we now know that Julia is going to be back in early December, uh, right after Thanksgiving break. And hopefully she will tell us some of her stories of parenthood for the third time, twins and a baby. That is some some tough parenting in a pandemic. And she will be talking to us once more about culture and the world. And I can't wait. I mean, I just want to say, I just want to leap in here and say that as soon as you said the word Julia, words Julia Turner is coming back, I was scrambling for my unmute button and I, I just couldn't get there quite in time. <laughs> but I, you know, there was also a visual which was my tail wagging vigorously, like, you know, you know, when a dog wags its tail so hard, their whole bottom half of their body <laughs> starts to, you know, kind of jerk back and forth. You know, that's my ass almost fell off. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say there's going to be a level of vibrancy and enthusiasm about the show. Not that we were not vibrant, enthusiastic to do this show in the past few months. But yeah, it's a tough time in the world. And we really, really miss our co-podcaster. So it's going to be a glorious day. And unfortunately, we will all be in different places during that recording. But I think that we should all raise a toast to each other and to Julia. And moving on, Steve, our only other item of business is to tell listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. Once again, we have a listener question. We had such a backup of good listener questions that we're going through them now. This is from a listener named Ezra. He got this question from an AV Club article he read some time ago, which got the question in turn from the comedian Patton Oswalt. And the question was, when and where would you most want to live for five years restricted to a five-mile radius? This, there's even more conditions on this question that are all funny and interesting to discuss. It's one of those hypotheticals where you have to lay down a bunch of 
conditions to make it work. But we will be discussing that time travel historical parameter question in our Slate Plus segment today. So if you're a member of Slate Plus, you'll get to hear us talk about that. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, as always, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. This only costs $1 for your first month. And for that dollar, you get ad-free podcasts, never have to listen to me read an ad again, and lots of bonus content like the segment I just described. And you will also hear members-only segments like that on other Slate shows like Slow Burn and the Political Gab Fest. And of course, if you're a member, you will get unlimited access to all of the great writing on slate.com. And lastly, of course, as a personal note, we appreciate those subscriptions because you're supporting us. You're supporting our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues to do the journalism that they do. These memberships are really important for us. So please, if you aren't a member, consider signing up at slate.com slash culture plus. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, on with the show. All right. Well, The Shrink Next Door, it's a limited series on Apple Plus. It stars Will Ferrell as Marty Markowitz. He's a man approaching 40. When the show opens, he's running a business that he inherited from his father. It's a drape and fabric business, but he's a conflict-averse neurotic of the highest order. So he's convinced by his sister, played by the eternal Catherine Hahn, to go see a psychiatrist, Ike Hirschfeld. Paul Rudd plays Ike. He's a grinning salesman with powers of insight and empathy, but a very strange sense of boundaries and a somewhat ominous tendency to self-aggrandizement. As Ike begins to shore up Marty with self-helpy exhortations and increasingly inappropriate interventions, Marty becomes more assertive with everyone except Ike, who is quickly becoming his personal guru. And as the framing device for the whole show makes pretty clear, eventually becomes a kind of master to Marty. We're about to hear Rudd and Will Farrell as Ike and Marty in one of the early uh, sessions. I really love your shirt, by the way. Is that, is that Ralph Lauren? Hmm. Lifshitz. That's his real name. Ralph Lifshitz. No. I never knew that. I, I know him a little. Took a picture with him at a UJA event. He's a lovely guy. His stuff is timeless. It really is. But Marty, you have very effectively changed the subject once again. <laughs> now come on, stick with it. I'm curious, how did your father's death affect you? Me? I mean, I'm fine. Fine? You lost your dad, Marty. You're well within your rights not to be fine about it. Yeah. I guess not so fine. Do you know how empowering and liberating it can be to allow yourself to feel a feeling and name the feeling? I miss him. Of course you do. When I think about the fact that he's gone, it it feels uh, not good. Karen, let me start with you. Uh, this was a podcast that I adored. I, I endorsed it on the show. I was very eager to watch this. What did you make of it? I will say I'm very excited to hear what you think because I wasn't familiar with the podcast at all and definitely want to know what you thought about it as someone who, I guess was familiar with the source material. Um, on my end, I really liked it and I can't wait to watch more of it. Um, in part because I, I will say I'm a, a Will Ferrell apologist. I think he's a very good um, dramatic actor. And in this role in particular, it's so fascinating to watch the way that Marty and Ike interact with each other because to a certain extent, you're still rooting for Marty. Like Ike does empower him to talk to, for example, a very exploitative um, ex-girlfriend and and Ike helps Marty kind of get all the way out of that relationship and stop kind of conceding to things that he doesn't want to do. Um, so in, in that way, you're like, Ike is a positive influence, but the way that they, the show balances the good and bad is so fascinating to me. Because for everything that you think, oh, like Ike is helping Marty, there's mm -hmm. a kind of a reverse um, act or a moment where you think, oh, he is just taking advantage of this very vulnerable guy. Um, I will say, though, if there's anything that I have to object to about the series, it's not even really an objection, but the accent work is very yeah. pronounced, I guess, or very loud to a degree where I was like, are you allowed to do this? Or like, is this right? Like, this isn't. 
it's it's the accents seem almost too broad for the dramatic tone that the show is trying to strike. I would say that there's one exception to that, and that's Paul Rudd. In fact, Paul Rudd's accent was so convincing that, and he looks so different mm-hmm. in the first scene when you see him, where he has sort of age makeup on, then it flashes back and you recognize him. But I honestly didn't recognize Paul Rudd when he first appeared in this show and thought, like, is that a guy playing the older Paul Rudd? And part of it was because he didn't talk like him. So Paul Rudd is the only Jewish person in the cast, among the major characters anyway. And this is a very Jewish milieu that the show takes place in. And he's also, he was born in Passaic, New Jersey. So whether or not he grew up speaking that way, he certainly grew up hearing that accent. And I feel like he gets that kind of a menschy, you know, Catskill comic, Borscht Belt kind of cadence to his voice in a convincing way. Some of the others maybe push a little bit hard for it. And it's true that, you know, even in New York and its New Yorkiest, not every single person talk that way, right? There's also a class difference, education difference among these characters. So you're right. The accents may be a little bit overdone, but um, (laughs) we're spending a long time on a small complaint because because I would say overall that I was blown away by this show. I I really, Mm -hmm. really love it so far. I've seen all three of the episodes that have aired. I'm definitely going to keep watching it. I was reading up about the showrunner, whose name is Georgia Pritchett, and apparently one of her other jobs is that she was one of the writers on Succession, which is really um, surprising. I was just thinking of our discussion, Steve, of Succession last Mm -hmm. week and, you know, how it how it has this certain lingo. We were sort of basically arguing, is Succession well-written or not, right? Like, it's incredibly well-written in that it has an extremely consistent voice, but that's not the same thing as creating a world where there are different characters who have different voices, and I think that this show is more successful at doing that. Obviously, it's completely different from Succession, right? It's not a satire. It is about, I guess, in a way, a world of wealth, but completely different, um, you know, goals and means of achieving those goals, but it just struck me as really interesting that somebody who is a show writer on Succession is now running their own show, which has a much different and I think much more humanist kind of bent. You know, even though this is in some ways uh, an unsparing portrait of both of its main characters, um, it's also very loving toward them and it's about having a relationship that's trying to be loving and compassionate or is at least feigning loving compassion to someone who really needs it and, you know, how that can become toxic and twisted, etc. I have no idea where it's going to go. I didn't listen to the podcast, but... I, I just I love these two characters, and we haven't talked about Catherine Hahn much, who plays mm-hmm. the sister of the Marty Markowitz, the Will Ferrell character. Um, but she's fantastic too. Just Terrific. I love when I get to see Catherine Hahn do something that isn't like I'm the wife, you know, I'm the put upon <laughs> girlfriend. You know, she is this completely other thing, and um, and she's also just a really well written and individuated character. Yes, I totally agree. Um, I love the show too. I, I principally for the work being done by the two leads, which is astonishing. I. I, some people, I think, maybe critics included, have gone in looking for something a little broader, a little stickier, and are somewhat befuddled by the show. Don't be. I think it it is very paced, but in keeping with the art of the long con, right? It's not really about delivering. Uh, it's certainly not about. It's not a punchline delivery or a laugh delivery system at all. It's it's really about watching these two men become deeply insinuated into one another's lives and the meta pleasure of watching two extraordinarily gifted, seasoned actors mm-hmm. practice their craft with 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 really uh, 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 quite, I think, beautiful le- le- layers of nuance. Uh, I would watch the rest of it for that alone, but also the story is an, ex- is an extraordinary story. It hews close enough to the original, just a little background on it. What One of the things I love most about the podcast is by necessity missing from the TV show, which is that the, the what sets up the whole thing is Joe Nacera, who is a legendary journalist, I think. I mean, I knew about him from friends of mine at the Times who he'd work with uh, when he was an editor. He just was a great editor, is a great editor, columnist, specializing in business, but knows how to expand any subject out into a general interest subject. He had a small place in the Hamptons. I can't remember why, you know, but on a Timesman's salary, somehow it was a legacy or it was a tiny dump or whatever. And he wakes up to the fact that there's this Gatsby-like figure in the house next door, much larger, uh, more pretentious house next door to his, throwing rather extraordinary parties, and he's a shrink. And then he discovers one day that the schlub who appears to be the handyman, the sort of pen-packed handyman of the joint, is actually its owner. And he begins to investigate and uncovers this story, hence the shrink next door. That f- that framing device and the character of Nocera himself is missing. Nocera is also a voice from journalism past. Just, you know, the intently curious, unrelentingly boots on the ground guy who wants to get the entirety of the story by talking to everyone and as a timesman who is not going to bullshit you. So unlike a lot of 
you know, true crime or true life podcasts, the kind of sanding of the edges and the inflation of something and the careful hiding of other details in order to make it very uh, cinematic and very Hollywood ready didn't happen in the podcast, which I really appreciated. Um, Here, there's a little bit of that, but surprisingly little. And that's another reason why its sense of sort of dramatic urgency is actually quite quite muted and and very gentle, but that much more insidious. I mean, Paul Rudd is so good, right, as the deeply manipulative narcissist who knows exactly where your buttons and sweet spots are. And am I the only one who's intrigued by the show's possible making of a connection between good therapy, which involves allowing a person to become a highly, in fact, it only works if a person becomes a highly dominant feature of your consciousness and hopefully your unconsciousness, at least traditional therapy, right? <laughs> therapy with any kind of living roots still in Freud um, and the long con. And, and the two are so close to, I mean, at moments can seem very close to being indistinguishable from one another. You know, you need the patient to kind of transfer their repetitive behavior, bring their repetitive behavior into the office. And it does make you realize how, how in the best circumstances, how, how tender, um, how delicate, how, how dangerous, really legitimately psychologically dangerous that relationship is, um, and how vulnerable to exploitation. Um, you know, there, how, how, how hyper-professionalized and rigorously policing and self-policing that pro- that profession needs to be in order for these situations not to become, you know, not just monetarily exploitative, but sexually exploitative. I thought the show was also very intelligent about that in a way that made me just, just reminded me of these kinds of relationships um, in my own life. Yeah, um, I agree. And I think what the show does well is saying that this is not like inherently what's going to happen if you go to therapy or something yes, like that. Like, because... Like, Ike is kind of, like, from the beginning, he's pretty transparently nasty or clout-seeking in a way that is just not visible to Marty because he's built up this dependence on him for such a long time. But, I mean, reading up on the actual case and then even in the um, show where they have, like, Lisa Rinna come on, it's, like, it's so clear that Ike is not doing this with the best intentions. Like, what he cares about is not Marty. It's about the proximity to money, to fame to fabulousness basically that's keeping him going right i mean the, the mental illness at the heart of this show is his narcissism ike's narcissism is the rudd character's narcissism it's it's what's actually fucked up and and finally megalomaniacal mm-hmm. and complete and and you know and sociopathic right like like at, yeah. at some level he doesn't regard what he's doing has to not regard what he's doing to Marty as, as as wrong in some sense, and only a kind of monster, a kind of you know whatever, like an emotional criminal would would do it. Um, yeah, I don't think that the show locates that sociopathy in the therapeutic relationship exactly. Yes. You know, no, right. and and I was I was grateful for that. Like as the daughter and sister of psychiatrists, I come from a family of shrinks, and I'm always very sensitive to that kind of thing. You know, the idea that mm-hmm. sort of like all shrinks want to do is slap you in the funny farm and give you electroshock therapy, and you know they just want to fix you or something. The show doesn't have any of that kind of axe to grind against psychiatry as a profession or you know the idea of a therapeutic relationship. In fact, it's very sensitive to all of the things. That 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 relationship brings to Marty in the early episodes. And that's why I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next. It's an eight-episode season, and I mean, I think it's going to be a finished arc at that point because it's based on a real-life story. And less than halfway in, I feel like their relationship is just starting to really go south, right? Like, what's Mm -hmm. basically happened is that that the shrink has discovered how rich his client actually is, you know? And there's some incredible scenes in in episode three where you sort of see his eyes (laughs) light up as he starts to realize how much exploitation lies ahead. So I'm very afraid for Marty Markowitz, but I'm Definitely yeah. watching all the I agree, Dana, that at the end, of, I think it is at the end of episode three, that scene, I won't give anything else away, but boy, it's just like, you know, one part of your heart is sinking for poor Marty and the other is starting to sing for what we're in for as viewers. 
I hope comedians everywhere get a chance to play dramatic roles like these guys do. I agree, Karen. I've always loved Will Ferrell in straight roles. Like I can go mm-hmm. back and find every dramatic part he's played I've raved about. Um, but yeah. he doesn't get enough of a chance, and neither does Paul Rudd. And I mean, if you can do comedy, you can do anything. You know, I, I mean, that... More comedians should get a chance to do drama. <laughs> right, and that gets proven out over and over again. Adam Sandler, this kind of, you know, yeah. you know, by reputation that he made his nine-figure Ten figure, whatever it is, fortune by being a buffoon in 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 uh, brothers, uh, the Meyerowitz stories, or I can't remember the Noah Baumbach movie. Just terrific in that movie. I mean, it, oh, or funny people. I would rather see Adam Sandler play yeah, a straight role than be funny. I like him better. Yeah, agreed. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, check it out. We, I would really love to hear people uh, people's take on this. It's it's gotten a kind of mixed reception, um, but I think critics kind of have this one wrong. And and but you know, tell us if you disagree. All right, moving on. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Okay, well, we here at the Culture Gap Fest take prepping the show very, very, very seriously. And I I often feel as though the amount of prep one does, you know, Dana, you can probably speak to this too as a, as a regular host, is, is like it's kind of in a vague, non-scientific way proportional to the importance of the gra- or gravity of the subject at hand. So for the following topic, I did no prep, zero. And it's uh, the uh, Paul Rudd is the sexiest man alive. Why are we talking about this? Why? <laughs> Tell me why. Why? Well, Stephen, as someone who does my homework, as the, <laughs> as the Hermione to your run, nerd, I can, I can tell you a little bit. <laughs> I mean, all I did in terms of further research than, you know, reading the article about Paul Rudd being named Sexiest Man Alive was to look at a roundup of the history of Sexiest Man Alive. And um, so the first Sexiest Man Alive is Mel Gibson in 1985. And in all of the years since then, I mean, for one thing, I was shocked at the number of repetition in Sexiest Man Alive. Like a bunch of people have gotten it twice. I think Mel Gibson may have gotten it twice. Johnny Depp got it twice. I think maybe Brad Pitt got it twice. That just seems wrong to me. I mean, there's enough sexy men in the world, for God's sake, that you don't need to rename the same person twice. But also, of course, if you're going to look more seriously into matters of diversity and representation, there have only been five people of color, all black men, who have been Sexiest Man Alive. A whole bunch of them have clumped up like in the last few years, right? There was Mm -hmm. Idris Elba, Michael B. Jordan, John Legend. It sort of seemed like they're, you know, retroactively compensating by by throwing some black guys into the mix. There's never been an Asian man. There's never been a, a Latino man. Well, worth pointing out that Dwayne The Rock Johnson has won it, and he is not, I believe, black. That's true. I guess he's of Polynesian descent, right? And then Keanu Reeves, there was some strange thing where there was a year, I believe 1994, that they didn't name one. And I would love a back behind the scenes podcast about what was going on at People Magazine that year that they just didn't have their meeting about the sexiest man alive. But for some reason, many, many years later, like in 2015, Keanu Reeves was retroactively named the sexiest man alive of 1994. So that's like an odd punt right there. But so there's this kind of whole history of what this thing is that seems very muddled and just strange and funny to me. And so that's why I'm glad we're talking about it. I mean, even just to pull the camera back a little bit further and just note that it would be impossible that they have a sexiest woman alive, right? I mean, in a way, you could say every magazine cover always is about trying to find the sexiest woman alive, but you would never have that contest and name it. Even back in the benighted days of 1985, I don't think that People Magazine would have done that because it would have been too much like a cheesecake judging contest, right? So that's also curious, is sort of like where we are with our ogling and our, you know, fetishization 
of of each other <laughs> that we have this category that's just kind of accepted as if it were an Oscar or some sort of you know oh, award God. that's given out every year. <laughs> the sexiest man alive. So Paul Rudd getting it has just been a funny moment because you know it's not often given to comedians. He's a you know he's obviously an attractive man, but he's sort of a you know skinny little Jewish guy. He is not at all a um, beefcake you know model or arguably he is now he's in marvel now so he's got the muscles yeah no he belongs on there as much as any of them but just maybe because he's he himself is very wry and funny about it and takes it extremely unseriously as to their credit they all do like i don't think many of them have let it go to their head anyway i to me it seemed like a moment of just putting this tradition under a microscope and saying like what are we doing with this Um, I mean, arguably, I think it's always been a little bit silly, hence Steve's from the top disdain of us talking about it at all. Um, But I also think, especially in recent years, that people have been a little less serious about it. Like, I I think maybe it's just the nature of media becoming more transparent to more people, although not enough, I think, so far. Um, But it's also arguably a contest that is mistitled, because looking back at the title's entire history... It does seem to be less sexiest man alive and more man who is very famous at that time alive. Hmm. And somebody who's promoting a project usually, right? It's usually somebody who's connected always. to something, something big that's just, you know, hit the airwaves. Yeah, always. They'll never be disconnected from that. I mean, that's just the glossy magazine business. Uh the tra- you know the horse trading that goes on probably to, you know, I mean, listen, it's not this is I can't imagine like maybe people, you know, tell me otherwise but i just just gotta be you know publicists and 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 conglomerates and i i don't know anyway it seems uh, yeah maybe it's a bunch of is, people is this coming room. from a place of why haven't i ever been named sexiest <laughs> man alive steve <laughs> oh, that's funny stuff i no. i what i will say is that is that you know maybe the equivalent was you know the sports illustrated swimsuit cover which shows you you know just the difference in a way because that literally is just confined to how a woman looks in a vanishingly small bathing suit mm-hmm. whereas sexiest man alive has this holism to it right it's it's like you know i mean obviously one is a swimsuit model and one is an actor and a star and star persona is a large construct but it it still goes to the idea that you know even if you could make some kind of argument for parody because men are being objectified now along with women, even then objectifying doesn't quite mean the same thing. It still means they're so charming. They have this twinkle. They're, you know, they have a gravity and they have a, you know, all these, the larger set of associations one might have for male sexiness. Right, and the larger parameters that are set, right? Like, I think Sean Connery was the oldest. He was 59 when he was named. Absolutely. I mean, imagine a 59-year-old swimsuit model, (laughs) you know? I mean, maybe it exists in some magazines, but it's not part of that big Sports Illustrated pitch, for sure. All right, well, let's pivot, maybe let's pivot a little bit, Karen, and talk about the remarkable Mm -hmm. arc of Paul Rudd. I mean, this I am avidly interested in because for many years... Personally, as someone who saw Clueless in the you know in the first run movie theater uh, back in the day, and you know he plays the he plays the stepbrother of uh, Cher, played by Alicia Silverstone. I mean, just truly the I I still to this day think the greatest maybe teen movie ever made. <laughs> and uh, right, it's just such it's just it's just so durable. It's so wonderful. Yeah. Parts of it come back over and over again to one. But he wasn't it wasn't a big part, but it was important because he was he sort of. You know, he regarded her, he regarded Cher with a a remarkable degree of of kind of benevolent suspicion, uh, amusement in kind of both senses of the word. You know, and um, and uh, and he was wonderful without without making a big imprint on the movie and that's a very particular kind of it's not a star it's like it's not a star performance but it was a performance that stayed with people and but the funny thing is for years he was that guy from clueless i mean i think it was years later i saw him in something else and that's who he was he was like oh oh oh, oh, that guy from clueless and it's it's amazing how slow the burn was here how slow the boil was that it really was just he kept showing up as the likable guy um, maybe not the star, but obviously an immensely intelligent actor, uh, you know, doing, you know, just filled with little grace notes, 
likable beyond likable, uh, plausibly average, but also um, you know, if you if you cared to look twice for being such a nice guy, also you know, incredibly attractive. And over time, he's he there's no doubt about the fact that like Paul Rudd is a major, major movie star. And I it it, it like no one no one thing broke him. It's just the Paul Ruddness, the ruddiness of Paul Rudd that did it. Um I love the the phrase, the readiness of Paul Rudd. Um, But it is true that he's just been around for such a long time. And it is funny to think of the fact that maybe only recently we have been more willing to call him sexy. Because I feel like anyone who saw Clueless was like, oh, yeah, like that guy is sexy. That's a really handsome, charming man. And maybe it's just the fact that he has so much charm has blinded us to the fact that he is also physically attractive. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he's not a bad boy, right? And that's part of why boy, his casting yeah. is really interesting in The Shrink Next Door that we were just talking about, right? Is that he doesn't Brilliant, usually play yeah. characters that have a huge edge. I mean, they might have like a little bit of a snarky sense of humor, right? But he plays sweet, warm-hearted guys that aren't sort of dangerous, macho dudes. And so maybe that keeps him out of the category of sexiness, you know, in, in the in the larger public eye. I don't know. He's not a super bizarre choice, but there's something a little bit quirky enough about it that, you know, I think if it had been, whatever, a Hemsworth brother or something, we would not be talking about this phenomenon right now it also sort of reminds me of the recent arc of Camille Nanjiani's career in so much as like I don't think anyone was calling him sexy at least like on a uh like on a major magazine cover like until he got super buff um and the like gym pictures of him were floating around where it almost feels like maybe the same thing happened here where it's we just take him for granted like because he's been in so many of these like goofy and kind of warm roles but as soon as something like ant-man or something turns up where he is suddenly like a lead character and also has to show off these marvel mandated muscles that um change i guess the public <laughs> temperature on him marvel a bit. mandated muscles <laughs> um <laughs> Let's let's go around and have each of us talk about about a favorite Paul Rudd moment from from his movies. I mean, I I think the thing, the Paul Rudd moment that I still think about the most is probably um, the the very now memed moment from Wet Hot American Summer, where he's having to do chores and is just being the pettiest person about and just going like, oh, and just like throwing things over, even though he's being told to like make them neat and just acting like a petulant child. And he does it so well, like his sense (laughs) of physicality is unmatched. He's so good. I have so many. I mean, he's just he's been funny and been a favorite for so long. But to pick. Well, okay, Wet Hot American Summer is a great choice, Karen. To pick a maybe slightly less known because it wasn't a big hit at the time, but very good movie. He is awesome in Our Idiot Brother, (laughs) in which he plays the title Idiot Brother, which is sort of a a family comedy drama. It also has some some tough stuff in it, but, you know, is basically a a performance vehicle for um, for Paul Rudd playing this. Oh, how would you even describe him? Just this this flaky hippie character who is driving his entire family crazy. Catherine Hahn actually is in it too, who's you know also plays opposite him in The Shrink Next Door. It's directed by Jesse Parrott, who I believe directed some of the episodes of The Shrink Next Door. And um, it's really it's a, as an ensemble comedy, hilarious. But what really makes it work is the lunacy of his character. So our idiot brother, that's mine. Oh my God, you you look at his you look at his IMDb page, and it's amazing how much he's in. That yeah, you've forgotten he was in right. Like anyway, I love I love it when he shows up on a TV show, Parks and Rec, Reno, nine one one. He's incredibly funny on those. Uh, did some voicing for Bob's Burgers. Uh, he's, he has great taste in in TV shows. For me, he will forever be the the the, the stepbrother on um, on Clueless. I mean, Anchorman. I mean, there's just a <laughs> lot. There's so much great stuff, but. Um, can I send people too to the Paul Red archives? I was going to endorse this, but since we're talking about red ruddy moments, mm. you can go on YouTube and easily find this with the right search terms. But before he made it as an actor, when he was presumably just a, a struggling thespian of some kind, one of the things that Paul Red did was he was a bar mitzvah animator. <laughs> he was one of those guys who you know tries to get people to dance at parties, and um, this obviously goes to you know his paying playing this this Jewish shrink and the shrink next door. But there's some really funny clips that you can find of him you know basically spinning. Discs and partying with 13 year olds uh, in, I guess it would have been the late 80s. Um, yeah, we'll find some to, to link to on our show page. But watching Paul Rudd do Barmer's Fay animation is definitely a, a career high point for him. I love it. All right. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe spare us our emails on this one. I don't know. Well, if you have love for Paul Rudd, share it, right? Um, get ready. 
All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Dana, what do you have? You know, my endorsement has to do with um, with the director of Passing, Rebecca Hall, as an actress. I think people, I'm sure, know Rebecca Hall's face. I'm not sure they necessarily associate her name with it because she is one of those actresses who disappears into roles, doesn't usually play leads. You know, she she is a, is a, is this figure who has been in movies for many many years, very good movies, and she chooses them well, but without quite ever becoming a movie star. And I just wanted to point to a movie of hers in which she gives an amazing performance. It's really what makes the movie, and uh, and it didn't get really talked about that much at the time. It's from 2016 and it's called Christine. Did either of you see this movie yeah, Christine where she plays good. the newscaster? She's incredible. Amazing, right? So it's a movie based on a true story, a very sad true story about a, a local newscaster who, um, for reasons that I won't spoil or get into, um, gets more and more depressed over the course of the movie, is not getting help for her depression, and eventually, as happened in real life, kills herself on the air, which is this horrifying thing to to contemplate, right? That that ever happened. It's like Network, the movie Network, coming to life. Um, obviously, that's an incredibly challenging character to play, especially without making the movie just some sort of miserablest march through this person's depressed state. And this movie does an amazing job of both getting you inside the head of a person who is severely depressed while being, you know, on camera and made visible to the world every day in that state. Um, but also it's just, it's, it's a really smart analysis of what it is to be a woman in the news industry or was at that time that this happened. Um, you know, it's got humor, it's got everything. It's not a perfect movie, but her performance in it is, I would say, perfect. And knowing that she's moving into directing is very exciting, but I hope Rebecca Hall doesn't totally give up acting as well because she really is extraordinary. So Christine from 2016 with Rebecca Hall as Christine Chubbuck, the newscaster. Very cool. Uh, Karen, what do you have? Uh, my endorsement is for Agnes's new album. So I only recently discovered her. Um, she is a Swedish artist. Apparently she used to be like kind of an idol singer in 20, 2005 or so, but she has just come back and sort of reinvented herself in a very um, disco strain. Uh, and specifically, I recommend her song, uh, Here Comes the Night. It is great. It's very like ABBA a little bit, disco. It's very catchy, very good, very fun. I highly recommend. Say her name again. Agnes. Mononym. Not a very, it's Mononym. not like Lady Gaga or anything in terms of how, I guess, memorable it is, but yeah. I love that she's going by that. Agnes is a great name and uh, yeah. I would 100% listen to the music of a Swedish one-namer named Agnes, so thank you. <laughs> All right, well, I was digging the movie, the soundtrack to um, Passing, and looked up who was doing it. A lot of it was very haunting, very simple solo piano, um, and it turned out it was Devante Hines. Now, I didn't Mm -hmm. know this when I saw that name, but that's Blood Orange, and I love Blood Orange. I didn't realize that Devante Hines, Dev Hines, has this other career. I knew he was a multi-instrumentalist a la uh, a la print, you know, just an, just a virtuoso performer on multiple instruments. And just, I love, if you don't know Blood Orange, you should know Blood Orange. Just love that, love his music. But he, as a composer, as a film composer, he's, he's, he's done a bunch of things and I love it. I've been listening, just literally putting his solo stuff, some of which is instrumental for movies. A lot of it is soundtrack work. Some of it is song work. Uh, there's a collaboration with Willow. There are a bunch of things on there, but all of it's incredible. His musical sense is so soulful. So it's got a delicacy. It's like it really fit with the movie in a way, um, that that sense of fragility. Um and and kind of I don't know I just I I really admire his work as a as a composer and I'm really digging it very quickly I came across a YouTube video of Nick Lowe and Daryl Hall, Hall uh, Daryl Hall of Hall and Oates Nick Lowe of Rockpile and various other claims to fame but also extraordinary solo career doing um, Nick Lowe's big hit from the late seventies Cruel to Be Kind not my favorite Nick Lowe song it was on the radio all the time when I was a kid didn't really need to hear it again but. What I love, there are two things I love about it. First of all, it's just the marvelous acoustic version of the song. It's very fresh. Daryl Hall is a really great 
uh, blue-eyed soul singer. He 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 really does justice to his part in this in this version of it. But also, they're kind of war- there are three of them. Uh, I think it's it's Daryl Hall, the bassist from Hall and Oates, whose name I'm forgetting now. T T Bone, somebody, um, and Niccolo and Daryl Hall are just kind of working it out. Who's going to sing what and maybe what the harmonies will be right before what it appear, appears to be right before they do it, just in a little guitar circle. And you're like. That's what it's like to be a real musician. Like, you know, like, it's fun to fuck around on a guitar and like, you know, pff, you know, hit open mic night. But these guys, I mean, and they just do it and the harmonies are so tight. Say you gotta be cruel to be kind in the right measure. Cruel to be kind is a very good sign. Cruel to be kind means that I really worth watching Nicklo, and then that brought me back to his appearance on fresh air which was reprised back in the fall they they did a kind of compilation of his appearances on on fresh air over the years Nicklo's tremendously gifted clever i think generous spirited songwriter uh check out all of the above uh check out dev hines he's a brilliant composer a lot of good music there Karen, thank you so much for coming on the show, taking time out from your busy Hollywood career. You know, <laughs> lower the. Sh- That's so lower nice your- of you to say. Yes, <laughs> pop your pair of shades up on your, you know, up on the crown of your head. <laughs> take a take a log drag on the cigarette, and you know, <laughs> drop some pearls of wisdom. It was great. No. Uh, really fun. Come well, back. Thank soon. you so much for having me. It's always so much fun to be on, and I will say, I'm always looking for other work. In case anyone listening out there is like, oh yeah, Karen seems cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she's she's right. She's double threat, tri- probably triple. Well, triple threat: podcaster, TV <laughs> writer, and, uh, and a great culture critic. Uh, and no, then- I have to say, I'm so impressed, Karen. Like when you made this changeover, instead of being a slate culture critic, I'm going to go be a screenwriter in Hollywood. It was sort of like, you know, I hope to hear something goes well for you sometime in the future. Next thing you know, you have a project. So, oh my God, <laughs> amazing, right? Yeah, best oh, of luck with so all much. your future endeavors. Yeah, and then she comes back a mogul. I love it. And Dana. Uh, as always, you just, wish you had such a success story for me, but alas, you have a completed manuscript, honey. That puts you one big leg up on me. But anyway, uh, uh, Dana is always a total pleasure. This was fun. It was. I love this week's show. Yeah, it was really good. Uh, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We do love to hear from you. We try to get back to you uh, uh, as we can. Uh, the intro music to the show is by a wonderful film composer in his own right, uh, Nick Bertel. Our production assistant is Ndira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews on behalf of Karen Hahn. And uh, Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon. Mm-hmm.